0: Hello everyone, this is Tony speaking to you from Chicago and welcoming you to what is the second episode of the new Everton Fans Forum podcast. This is a new podcast series made by Evertonians, for Evertonians, with the aim of keeping Blues connected on all things Everton. And with Blues in every part part of the world uh, in today's game, today's episode has got an international flavour to it. And I'm pleased to be able to say that to help guide us through the next hour or so... I'm joined by my Fans Forum comrade and partner in crime, Joe O'Reilly. Joe, how are you doing, mate? Good afternoon, Tony. I'm well, pal. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. It's uh, it's a bit dark here in Chicago at the moment. How things in Dublin? It's lovely and sunny. A bit, bit cold, but it's lovely and sunny. Very good. Very good. For those of you that haven't had a chance to listen to the earlier pods, uh, just a quick reminder that the Fans Forum has now got international representation for the first time, so... Both Joe and I have got the job of making sure that those Blues that that live outside the UK have got a voice. So that's, you know, whether they're scousers like myself that have moved abroad or those that have decided that, you know, Everton is, is their team. Later on, we're going to be hearing from three Blues who are actually going to be speaking to us um, on three different time zones from different parts of the world about their Everton story and what it's like to be a Blue abroad and how they came to be. And what it's like to be an Evertonian and living in a different country and following our team. But first, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome somebody who, first of all, knows what it's like to grow up as a boy blue outside the UK, went on to fulfil and live their boyhood dream of playing for our club, uh, and then, critically, went on to score one of the most important goals in Everton's history, which actually. Uh, was happened this week 22 years ago, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, will be something that is etched on our memories. Since leaving the game, he's gone on to forge a really successful career in law uh, and has also spent time observing how football has evolved into a global force and some of the implications that that's had in the game, as well as what it means for fans watching their team uh, from different countries. So, a very warm welcome to Gareth Farrelly. Gareth, yeah, how are you very doing? well.
1: Thank, thanks a million. It's a uh... I'm am de- delighted to be here and speaking to you. I'm looking forward to it.
0: That's great that you can join us, and I, I think um, um, you and Joe have already got a, a natural connection, given that uh, that you're both from Ireland. And Joe's going to lead us off into the into the discussion uh, today. Morning, morning, guys.
1: Joe. nice to speak to you.
0: Yeah, uh, new tail, pal, uh,
2: a fellow dub like myself. Uh, again, you you kind of, you start yeah, off a home yeah, home farm. You, farm was my fact? club. Yeah, yeah, a very good friend of mine used to walk out there, Bill Dodd, uh, he he worked on the underage groups, but a huge, huge schoolboy team yeah, out there in Hawke Farm.
1: produced a lot of really, 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 really good players.
2: Yeah, yeah. including Nicky Bourne yeah. from Westlake. Said, <laughs> he said, he top, came said top, through top players, yeah.
1: musicals, mu- musical superstars, <laughs> it's that funny one, they, be, they become, be- they be- they become uh, exactly. better yeah. footballers yeah. as they get older, it's quite interesting.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, just going back, like obviously in Ireland, you know yourself, like Liverpool, United, Celtic as such would be the, the big supported teams over here. How did you come about to follow Everton?
1: Well, I think everyone supports Celtic anyway. That's obviously one of the parts being been Irish. But with regards to English clubs, for me growing up at that time, was that everybody naturally supported the big ones. So, like you say, your Liverpool's your Man United's. And for me, I. So, kind of in 1983, now when you think about trying to add backwards or subtract, going back how many years that is, I remember seeing Everton on the TV. And again, it would have been a totally different scenario then. But I remember seeing the kit and I remember seeing the team and I remember thinking, oh, I love that. And that was kind of where my my interest started. And then that obviously led into eighty-four winning the FA Cup and obviously everything that went with that. And then into that period of what is... Arguably, Everton's Everton's best time. So, everybody sort of followed the path of the Liverpool, Man United, different things. But for me, that was I. I didn't want to be like that. Everton was my team from the from the start, and that's kind of how I supported and started supporting them. That that was that was where it started
2: for me, really. Did you have many Everton friends? Just was myself. Just it, was,
1: it was it was a crazy one. You speak to people now, and it's you you, you try to remember back, you know and I mean. I used, like every young boy, I'd be in school, you'd be, you'd be drawing the crest on all of your school books, you'd be writing the team, and you'd be talking about mm. the if, buts, or maybe that, that was the team you wanted to play for, and that was your passion, if you like, and I think you lose that when you become a footballer, in some ways, because it becomes a job and all of the different elements around that, but I've seen it more recently, kind of with my son, as he was starting to grow up, and seeing it through his eyes, and that love, and then that interest, and Things around it, so it kind of brought me back to how it was for me. So I was an Evertonian. I was an Everton fan from as long as I can remember.
0: And Gareth, you, I mean, I know when I was growing up, um, going into school on a Monday morning wasn't wasn't the greatest experience for me because uh, apart from you know that that period in the eighties when we had we had a, a you know a great a great period and it was a little bit easier. You know, you said that when you were growing up, it was it was through that period. But maybe your son hasn't hasn't enjoyed you know, some of the the same successes. So so what was it like sort of being an overseas fan and supporting from a different country and sort of going into school. No well, it,
1: it, it, going to school, it would have been the same banter as people have all the time. I think like like we say we talk about the conversation today, but the fact was it was a it was a brilliant Everton team. So the likelihood was they were more often than not winning on a Saturday. And as I say then and Joe you'll probably back me up was that same same as in England, there wasn't the same level of uh, t v coverage or exposure, but you look at the f a Cup was like a day event, and if you remember back like where they'd they'd be at the hotel where the teams were having their breakfast they'd be on the bus taking them to the ground and i i I think that that would have been one of the kind of standouts which was the f a Cup final and everything that went with that, and that kind of cemented that you know support and love for that kind of group if you like so it was it it, it was it was a different time but you, you go through the team, you go through the legends that played in that team. Obviously fortunate to know some of them and see them now. It's unrivaled and I don't think Everton have got anywhere remotely near that since. And there's a, there's an argument whether they will. And that and that goes from Howard all the way down to the players. So again, as a young lad, you knew everybody. You didn't just know the 11, you knew the squad, you knew everything about it. And it was all of those same same feelings associated with it. But again, living in Ireland at that time, it wasn't like every week you could hop on a plane and come across and watch a game. It was, uh, it was yeah. support from afar. Yeah.
0: So you were obviously reliant on sort of, you know, what snippets you could get on the telly and the radio where you Did they, And what was the what was no, the No, there, there wasn't like a lot, to be honest
1: with you, Tony. There wouldn't have been a huge amount of coverage, but it, it, it was that you were reliant on the match of the day, one programme a week, if you like, which sort of give you basic kind of highlights of the game and or what you could pick up through different forms of media. So it, it, it was nowhere near like the intensity and exposure that's, that is there now. Very
0: good. I bet you we went last on match of the day in yeah. those Yeah,
1: Stay up late, <laughs> stay up late on a Saturday night to get a bit of match of the day before you had to go to bed.
0: Uh, just
2: uh, fast forward slightly, like, we'll talk about that goal you scored. Uh, I remember Howard Kendall saying that he had a dream the night before that you would come on and score the winner. I don't know how true it was, but like, what a great story. But could you just talk about true that day yourself and your feelings he, leading up he, he to the always game? always
1: spoke about that, to be honest with you. And there's just two parts to this. And again, I'm sure you'll encounter it with us. Is that I wanted to win things as a player. You wanted to win things for everything. You wanted to win things in your career. So having a discussion about a positive, negative, about a goal always becomes quite interesting. But the thing is, for me, that had been an incredibly challenging year. It was my kind of first year as a full-time pro in the first team. I signed for Everton because I wanted to play for Everton. I gave no thought or analysis to where the team had been at for the few years before that, um, what the chances were of you know, challenging at the top end of the table, different things that people would consider now. I just wanted to play for Everton. And when Howard Kendall phoned to meet, obviously as he took the job on that third day, I just wanted to do it. So the point was, and I've told the story to people since, I came, I met him, I met Adrian Heath, I met Viv Busby, I was at Goodison. I signed a blank contract and flew back home to Dublin because they hadn't finished negotiating the contract. But that was how much I knew I I was going to play for Everton. There There wasn't any other consideration at that time. I had lots of other options. I had teams that wanted to speak to me, but I never even pursued that. So, the, the year was incredibly challenging and a season and again I know there'd been a similar experience four years before that with Graeme Stewart and Barry Horn scoring against Wimbledon so to go through such a learning curve of that year, how difficult it was uh, the challenges of playing at Goodison, the demands of the fans the pressure of being near the bottom of the table, so to get the outcome that I got and the club got was, was huge for me with regards to that last day, and you talk about Howard having that story, the really, really nice thing now for me is that everybody you kind of meet who's a fan has a story associated with that day. And the thing for me was the story of that day would actually go back to the Sunday before, which was Arsenal away. And obviously Arsenal won the Premier League that day. They, they beat us comfortably and comprehensively. And if, if you talk about a career, it's quite funny because I was at, I was at a... With the UEFA course I was on, we, we spent a day at the Emirates um, 18 months ago, two years ago. And um, in the main reception in the Emirates Stadium, there's a picture of Tony Adams with his hands in the air, celebrating. And I had to take football. a picture and I sent it home to my son saying, here's the reality of football, because I was the person in the background of the picture. <laughs> so I'm saying, he's, he's on the wall at the Emirates <laughs> celebrating having won the Premier League. And I'm in the background thinking, I can't believe we've come to Highbury and got beaten 4-0 when we were all hopeful at the start that we might have got yeah. a result which would have alleviated the pressure that came with the week that followed. So that, that, that week became really interesting because mm. we travelled back on from London and there was a group of us requested to play in the reserves on the Monday. And it was, I think it was a mini derby. And the sponsor commitments required that the group had to go to Pontefract races. I think it was because of one-to-one because of the sponsorship deal. And we were like, I don't want to go to the races. I want to play because we've obviously got a huge game coming up on Sunday. So there was a few of us played in that game and I think we won. And then obviously we had a really, really strange week of easy day, Tuesday training, Wednesday, Thursday. Then there was talk of another day off that week to try and remove the pressure from the players. But the players actually turned around and said we wanted to p- train. So we came in and trained and then there you go uh, jump in if you've any questions at any point by the way so as opposed to just me talking but what happened then on the Saturday was unusually for a home team they made a decision that we were going to stay over in a hotel so I think we stayed in Parkgate and obviously trained and then went to the hotel and it was again it was quite strange Sunday morning we had our pre-match meals and Howard which again was unusual there was a team meeting where he named he named the team and I was I was fortunate and I was I was really really pleased that I was playing But you go to the memories of that day then and you talk about um, things that were amazing in the respect that I remember on the way to the ground, even on the bus, that there was a huge amount of people out on the streets, blue and white. And you kind of started to get a feel for the significance and importance of the day. We got to the ground. There was a really, really strange um, atmosphere in the respect that the ground was nearly full when we went to do the warm-up. The youth team had won the FA youth cup they 'd been incredibly strong that season. I think the women had won their league as well, so you could just feel the start of something really, really special that day and Despite how difficult the season had been i was i, I just i really really enjoyed that pressure and i was I was looking forward to it and i, I didn 't really doubt that we wouldn 't get what we needed on that day, but obviously then you go into the situation where having had a lot of shots during the course of that season. And it was on last week. Somebody sent me the link about it being twenty-two years, and then I looked at it again, and I thought, "Yeah, it's uh, something special to be have been a part of."
0: So Gareth, you, you talked about um, sort of the presser situation, and sort of I'm just interested in how different players deal deal with that sort of situation, and also, you know, this was your first year as a as a full time pro. You know, there'd been a, a difficult atmosphere around the club. Obviously, it was a critical game for everybody. I'm just interested in sort of how the team pulled together and what the dynamics were um, across the team and how different people coped and how they looked I after you. I think football if you is funny.
1: It. I think I say first year as outright first team player, if you like, because I'd come from Aston Villa from a time when the team had been really, really strong, and you were kind of breaking through. So when you when you were your your games, if you like, are coming on as a sub or being involved in the squad was slightly different because you were tending to come into a positive environment. I think the challenge at Everton and it came very early was like that the intensity of playing for Everton and despite having been a fan from afar not really having that understanding of that and then obviously within a dressing room dynamic you've got different players within that dressing room who react and whose personalities are kind of different and then there's a fan perception of some of those individuals. So I think that year was incredibly difficult. And as I say, having Everton having come from, like there was the Dogs of War, which is a clearly defined identity and which the fans relate strong within that Everton group. Then you had our team, whereas for me say, as a footballer was, I judged how I did in a game by how much I had the ball, how many positive passes you played, how many good things you'd done. So yeah. it was a big, big challenge. But the counter to that was, I enjoyed the pressure. And... In my mind, I think I always thought that if I keep doing the right things, if I keep shooting, if I keep, it will turn. And the thing is that there's a different type of bravery, there's a different type of leadership with regards to that, that sometimes it's easy to say, oh, well, I'm not going to do that now because I'm getting slaughtered for it or I'm under becoming under increased pressure. And the reality to that was, and it's, I still talk about it now, is that, the biggest thing for me was we'd played Leicester three weeks before at home. We drew one all and I'd actually, I'd played really well in the game, but I missed a really, really, uh, what I would say was a the scored side foot volley. It's the one that still comes back to me now, right? But after that, I started to right. get a lot more stick and I and I found that pressure to be like, oh, right, okay, hang on. This is really, really, every time I got the ball, I was getting stick. And I also giggle now because you know yourselves sods law that when you're under pressure or when something bad has happened you know that on every occasion the ball is going to come back to you then for the remainder of the game so it's like in your mind half mm-hmm. you're thinking oh my god I'm going to pretend to run here hopefully the ball won't come to me oh and I was, never kind of, I was never kind of that way but the <laughs> point is I started to feel that pressure then a lot lot more and I think the manager was quite good then because obviously I didn't start the next game which was Sheffield Wednesday at home and then I didn't start against Arsenal, but obviously came on against them at half time, and obviously played well. But the point was we got we got beaten four 0 So you're you're not going to be turning around and trying to present a case saying, well, we lost four 0 yeah, yeah. but I did really really well today. So it was a huge learning. And as I say, that's the whole point that I had shots hit wide over other players. Goalkeepers looked brilliant, made great saves, and. It just hadn't hadn't fallen from me, but then to obviously keep going and then to have my first goal be at Goodison in them circumstances on that day, well, it's it's the only reason we're having this chat now, to be honest. Fantastic, absolutely. Fantastic. It's still it's still their only star for Everton. It's not not forever, it? bigger one than that. It's gone top away in the coca <laughs> You've just beaten oh, you've just beaten man. my party piece. Anytime <laughs> I'm down at Everton, we always end up having that. There's a there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a huge build-up given about the goal, and then obviously people row in with Scunthorpe away, and that was and that was right foot. That was the right oh, foot as well. Mate. We we beat them one oh, yeah. 0 So again, just at that time, it was it was I, I thought it was going to be a completely different season to how it turned out.
0: Oh, it's great. Uh, it's great insight just into into sort of you know how your surroundings can you know can can impact you you know and you know, that's I'm sure many people sort of feel that like in in their everyday sort of working situations yeah, as well yeah just the only, the only, so, so the only thing on on bit, just the saying, and it's to quite you.
1: interesting because i talk about my being a fan in the 80s and i talk about the what's winning the league twice i talk about the european cup winner's cup i talk about the super cup things that i have a recollection of right and and, and a memory and you talk about like Getting the opportunity to speak to you. And obviously, I'm extremely fortunate with the relationship I still have with people at the club. And to try and kind of um, mm-hmm. be succinct about it, and, and, and Joe, you'll appreciate this. Can you imagine, like, so growing up as an Everton fan, right? Where the only thing you ever wanted to do was play for Everton. You drew the tower on your school books, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody sent me a, a link yesterday, actually, about it was to do with the Kennedy Cup, Joe, in, in Dublin. And the Kennedy Cup was a, an under-14 mm-hmm. competition, Tony, that the leagues played in. So it was like a national competition where each league played. And somebody had sent me the team sheet. We, we, we won it that year at 14, right? So can you imagine like, going all the way through and then ending up playing for the team you supported as a boy, which was obviously one of your biggest ambitions alongside playing for your country, and then to have an outcome that we're discussing today? Be special about that.
0: Dreams do come true. Absolutely, hard to imagine. I think me and Joe are still. Uh, Listen, still never, never, never
1: stop Joe.
2: believing. I don't think i getting it.
0: Very good. Very good. So, listen. Fast forwarding a bit, um, Gareth. Um, obviously, you know you you went on to play. You went on to play for Bolton. I think you also had a, a management experience back back in Ireland as well. Um, I, I'm just interested in you know you talked about some of the learnings and some of the, even sort of the test of your own character. You know, particularly when you you were at Everton and and, and some of the things that that sort of impacted you. So how did you start to sort of make that transition from, you know, a professional football career to to sort of where you are now? Well, I I think youth is wasted on the young is the first part.
1: And I think I I, I would say that I made huge mistakes while I was at player and that I was probably immature, insecure, fearful and reacted and made decisions that with a little bit more worldliness or wisdom, I wouldn't have done. So I fell out of love if you like with football at 28 at Bolton I fell out with Sam Allardyce and I started to think about well what am I going to do so I obviously like you touched on I had a two year spell as player manager of Bohemians which was again a difficult experience but from a learning experience of managing and running a club it was an incredible two years incredible challenge, incredibly challenging but I think the, the biggest one for me was probably my illness and I was my illness was 12 years ago now and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with regards to the fact that I was able to recover from that. So with regards to the challenges that footballers face, and there's a lot more in the public domain around transition now and second career and the challenges that brings, I think I was quite lucky in the respect that at 32, I, as all athletes who are incredibly resilient do, I wanted to return to play after my illness. I got fitter and stronger than I had probably been in 10 years. But there was always going to be a question mark over my medical, given, given the aneurysm I'd had and given what had happened to me as a consequence. So I started to simply started to Google things about sec- like, what would I like to do. And it, it coincided with a period where I started to look at my financial affairs and the advice I'd been given while I was, whilst I was a footballer. And within my rehabilitation, I'd had a call to the house from the English Revenue demanding money for a scheme I had been put into by my advisor that I knew nothing about. I knew knew about the scheme, but I obviously didn't know about the liability or the exposure I had. So I started to look into that in more detail. I went to visit a lawyer and I had a negative experience with a lawyer. And I did what a lot of people do is he spoke in certain terms in the meeting and I nodded uh, as if acquiescence to, as if I understood a lot of what he was saying and I didn't. And I came out of there and I decided that I want to look into my affairs in more detail. And in order to do that, I need to have a better understanding of the legal implications. So I went away and started to look at what do I need to do if I want to become a lawyer? So I went to a, I went to a university in Liverpool and I had a very negative experience where somebody looked at me as if to go, well, you're, you're a mature student. You've been out of 15 years. You can't just come in and do this. Maybe go away for a couple of years and do a foundation course, and then you can come back and maybe have a conversation with us then. And then I had the absolute counter to that, where I went to Edge Hill University in Ormskirk, and I met people from the first instance that were incredibly supportive. So that kind of set me on my kind of path to become a lawyer, if you like. So it took me over seven years. But I was very, very fortunate and still remain so with the, with the people I kind of met who helped me along the way. And there's a lot of them.
2: It's interesting, Garrett, that you say like, you fell out of love with football close to the end. A lot of players say that. But some, some players don't actually have a plan like for what life after football. Do you think like, players yeah, should I, get I, more I support? There's,
1: there's, there's, it's a really, really interesting topic and it's a topic on its own. Because we say support, right? you're dealing with a different psychology and a different um, environment. And you can use it as an example that um, we've all probably encountered it in some form in our different careers, but that if you're 18, 19 and somebody comes in and they walk in and you'll make a judgment on them within five seconds of them being in the room and they sit and they tell you, you need to start to give some consideration to what you're going to do when you finish, that the average footballing career is eight years. It's a small part of your life and that a lot of people face issues around it you're going to be part of that one group that goes, well, fair enough what you're saying, but that's not going to apply to me. I think everybody has to kind of follow their own journey. There's an absolute obligation to be totally committed to what you do whilst you're doing it. But I think now there's more of a recognition and there's always been people who have been conscientious and thought about it and done very well, but it's just, maybe it's probably more visible and more in people's minds now. I think the support to a degree is there, but with regards to any support, one, you have to access it and then you have to commit to it as well. So I'm not, I would never say to anybody, Oh, I think you need to do this. Or I think you need to do that. I think what I see a lot day to day now is that different people are facing different challenges and that, that can be irrespective of your financial position. You're going to face those same challenges, transitioning, irrespective money obviously gives you time and opportunity, but, if you look at football and a world that people have been immersed in for their whole lives, there's only so many managers, there's only so many coaches, there's only so many pundits that if you don't want that, then there's a trial and error process, if you like, of looking at different things and then maybe dipping your toe in to see whether there's something you like or something you envisage doing over a period of the time. So there's a lot of successful stories with it, but it's just it's a different challenge and it's, it's one that you can't, you can't hide from it's going to get you when, once you finish your footballing or professional career. Again, it's not only open to footballers. Athletes experience something really, really similar. That It's a, it's a big challenge. And, and one of the things I've spoken about in the past as well is a lot of it is dependent on how much of your identity has been associated with what you did. So having been a footballer for that period, the adulation, the positivity, all of the things that come with that, to have all of that on a Sunday and then on a Monday, you're no longer a footballer. It's a it's a huge challenge for people, and people deal with it in different ways.
0: Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting. And like if you sort of bring it to sort of current times as well. You know, you know, right, right in the in the middle of a debate now around you know the potential return to football. You know, after after the crisis, and you know what what we've seen over the last couple of days, Gareth is is what seems to be certainly from the media a lack of. Um, Sort of involvement around what the players' views have been on on some of this, and you know, again, I'm just I'm just interested in whether you you know you feel as though players have got you know uh, a strong enough voice. Well, there's a really in narrow, insular
1: view well to generally. how the media work, isn't there? Because if you look at the cycle of this, the initial part of the pandemic was footballers need to give money because they earn so much money, and you were dealing with uh, deflection and distraction from say a government who are looking to point a spotlight on somebody else to alleviate the pressure they're under. I think with regards to the player voice, I think the players have dealt with it incredibly well. And I think they're to be commended for that. And they took their time. You have the players' initiative that they've done with the NHS and people have contributed to. With regards to the next phase, I was speaking to, I did an interview earlier this morning about it, is that that is going to become more prominent now over the next couple of weeks as we move to a next phase so one of the things that's quite interesting for me is having friends who are around Europe be it legal or be it actual the footballing and sporting um, participants is that trying to navigate where it's going to get to but I think the players union despite what you would read about in the media is very very prominent and has a big role to play in that and I think that the players have to have that support of people that they can rely on and put their fears to, allay those fears, become better informed about all of this because the thing with the pandemic so far is there's very few people want to stand up and take a position where they're basically saying, at the moment. So whilst Germany is ready to return to football this weekend, we're obviously two to two and a half weeks behind them. We've only just got to the guidance yesterday, which was released about how people can potentially return to their training ground. And obviously incorporating that protocol and the principles that have been set out, which still are pretty much training on your own small numbers, starting to get your fitness back. Because again, there's going to be a lot of issues that people haven't really given any consideration or contemplation to yet, which again in Germany will be interesting, but we will have our own issues because for a lot of those players, and you you look at them as athletes, they will have never had such a period of uh, deconditioning or rest, probably over the last period of years, than they've had whilst there's been a shutdown. So there's a whole host of challenges that are going to present themselves, but I think there has to be like an integrity and an honesty around that, that people are better informed as to those challenges, rather than media running quick snapshots stories on negativity because at the end of the day those answers aren't there yet and will only evolve as we start to go through the protocol and that's only step one of the protocol. So it's really, really interesting. But with regards to the media, I believe that never has the player voice been more important. And one of the things within the recovery of this, and I would include I would include the fans forum in this, is that it's never been more important. But the point being that you can only make a judgment the better informed you are. And that's like one of the key points now. So I think the players obviously had a call yesterday with the Premier League and the other stakeholders. Of those fears were voiced, now you go back to a situation where the return to training is due to start on Monday, although some of the clubs have been doing it already. And then you kind of multiply that and look on a European level where Sweden, Denmark, Germany, you know, they're all moving towards that as well. Spain, Italy, so it's going to be fascinating because nobody here, despite the fact that a date has been given of the 12th of June, that may move. And, and we don't know because, again, we'll only be able to make a decision based on how this initial phased return goes. So it's, 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 it's fascinating. But we talked about football. The scary part of this is, and, and I always say it when I get an opportunity, is I'm only here because of the care I received from the NHS and that everybody is facing things like that. So I don't think footballers are any different, or despite how they're portrayed sometimes, that they consider themselves to be a special case in any way. But sometimes that's the natural default position of a media that are lacking content. I think that's one of the biggest demonstrable things from this crisis, again, is that you realise that the media... And you look at Sky or you look at the broadcasters, that without football, they've got very little to offer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think your point around representation is really important. Um, You know, obviously, you talked about it from a player's perspective and touched on fans. I mean, we as a fans forum, you know, we've. You know, we've tried to do exactly that through this process. So, you know, in, in our last fans forum meeting, you know, we shared with the club some of the feedback and some of the concerns that certainly we'd heard from, you know, from, from Blues fans as well on this. So, you know, and they'd given us the reassurance that that was taken into account as they were going into those meetings. But um, I, I want us to sort of maybe just move on a little bit as well, Gareth, on, um, you know, you mentioned there are a number of different countries and how, the global game um, sort of has an influence now on on football, but you know, and, and how, how the game's evolved. And I just want us to sort of spend a couple of minutes on that. Obviously, you know, Joe and I have got you know a, a role here to sort of look at sort of you know the international fans. So I'm just just interested in in, in some of those international influences that you that you referred to and how, Which, you, how you think Tony it's about in, in, in what way. Yeah, you talked about um, you know, you talked about specifically what was happening in different countries. And I know, for example, you know, I think you did a, a qualification with UEFA, which took you to um, you know, I think you spent a bit of time in a number of different countries. Um, so again, I'm just just trying to understand why that international yeah, well, dimension no, listen, is. Listen, great question. And the
1: point is because it is, it's a global game. And I think that's that's the reality. So I think I was fortunate that I took part in UEFA run a court ex-international footballers it's a 21 20 month masters program to give you the short version it's one of the best things i ever did um, the course was exceptional i met some exceptional people on it who are were transitioning and making their kind of next steps and have some have moved on to really really strong positions within the game already and some are kind of still finding that route and have upskilled themselves to assist with that process Within that course, we got to kind of travel Barcelona, um London paris we were in new york um, and it was it was brilliant to get a, an understanding of basically how the game has changed the global nature of the game, obviously, and the different sessions were based on a particular topic, be it marketing um stadium management the uh, for competitions um Marketing, every, everything that went with it. So it, it, it was a brilliant course. The people that delivered the course were exceptional. But I think what it did do was exactly the point you've made, Tony, which is make you aware above and beyond what we see here. And I think you talk about the globalization of football. I think the MLS is getting stronger and is going to continue to do so. I think that's and that can be seen already with the expansion of the franchises. I think here the Premier League has always been a global brand and that is one of the really interesting dynamics with regard to their position now because with their success brings a host of different challenges now for the 20 stakeholders within the Premier League around looking to finish the season because of the financial implications for all of the clubs if they don't and then obviously looking at fans around the world as well, the German model and how that works, the 50 plus one and the input and the respect with how they all deal with each other so for me it was amazing to be exposed to all of these things that as a player you have that with their earphones in it's great you just go in you put your boots on and then you go and play whereas when you retire and step to a whole new area you only realize how much goes with it and i think understanding of that and probably a different type of respect for how
2: the game works just, just on that point, Garrett, what would be the main differences from the time when you played? Oh God, I, think, football now, now.
1: I always, I feel, I think my challenge and people who retired, one of the things they face is their challenge to stay current. And that's obviously by having an understanding of everything that goes with it. Mm. Like when, when I played our club, the Sky Era was there. We're not talking about anything unusual, if you like, but I think it's in the last kind of five to six years and the recent Broadcasting deal—it's—it's it's gone on another level with regards to the money in the game, and that's, that's—that's transferred to exposure, um, content, that constant pursuit for more content, and, and and the challenges that come with that. So I think the reality is, and it's it, even within the pandemic, is that the, the players haven't changed. They want to play. They love playing mm-hmm. football. It's not solely about money. Money is a consequence of the game and the level, the elite level they're at from a commercial side and financial side, I think it's, there's been huge changes over the last few years, not all of which is good. Because I think we need to protect the game and that's where the fans come into it again, that that fan voice is critical to that because there's always a danger that it's societal. that we, Irrespective of how much money you have, it's never enough. And I think that's what's going to be interesting now, how we come out of the pandemic and the recovery, whether there's going to be a sole focus on economics and a drive for more, or whether there's going to be a recalibration of sort that we return to values and the importance of the club, the identity, the fans. And I think that's something that Everton have always done very well. But That's why the fan voice is so important within that.
2: Yeah, I think the main difference for me is just the disconnect between players and fans uh, not, not from a Everton point of view but just football in general it just seems that the players have moved away from the fans like they see it as a job obviously it's a job for them but they see it more as a job than you know yeah uh,
1: but society, like a society things, things have all happened haven't they like we talk about uh, mobile Denise. media or social media age and like Tony this will be interesting for you i would be interested to see what you think because you have a situation where a lot of the things we do here they're branded and sold as being new the sports model in a lot of ways one of which is like the fans the and the pedestal they've been put on now which to a degree they're they're less approachable but the point you still speak to a player they're still the same they're just probably more sensitive to what they can and can't do can and can't say because of that It's on, a, it's on a platform within some of them having done it. So th- there's a degree of insularity based on that and how that's happened already. So the disconnect is probably a consequence of the game as well. I think that you go to Goodison and we talk about the new stadium is obviously a hugely important thing in the context of Everton as a club. But you talk about Everton and being able to touch and feel the tradition and the history that's there. You talk about going to games and seeing those players that you still have access to from the 80s. I, I can go back even more. You talk about the likes of Joe Royal, you talk about Derek Temple, you talk about um, Martin Dobson, you talk about lots of people who I still meet now, Pat Vanden Heu, um Ian Snodden, lads that are there, and you still have that access. But I think this is my point about a lot of the changes in the game are not necessarily for, for good. The player has changed. The personality of a player has changed. Their perception has changed. The level of wealth has facilitated a degree of detachment and that's one of the things that fans probably struggle because being a fan is all about emotion, isn't it? And 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 a natural association that Mm -hmm. there are players and everything that goes with that. And that's where that's where the game has changed exponentially now. And like you say, some changes are good but some are, are not necessarily so and there's always a battle to try and maintain a balance in that.
0: Yeah, I think I think you raise a really good point, Gareth. And I think you're right. I think this is going to be tested. Uh, I mean, I'm not just talking about Everton. I'm talking about the game as a whole. Um, you know, post the crisis, to see to see how you know how this. I mean, you only have to look at the debate now around you know football without fans. So I think there is. And for, from Everton's perspective as well, I think you know again, once we you know hopefully we come through. The crisis, you know, we've got some critical points in our future in terms of the transition to the new stadium and what that means. And, you know, to your point, you know, how do we hold on to, you know, to those values that, you know, the evidence associated with. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Now, yeah, I've got course. one, one just, last just, question for you, Gareth, if away. that's okay before, before we let you go. We know you're a busy man. Yeah, no, we're still awake. We're still, we're still with you. Um, you know, obviously your your role now is to is to act as a representative. You know, albeit in a you know an elite in a legal sense. Um, you know, you're you're there to represent the interests of your clients. So, you know, in a, in a similar way, that's that's a bit like sort of the role that Joe and I have got on the fans for. And I'm just I'm just interested in how do you go about you know, making sure you can, you know, you can understand. Well, the I've been hugely impressed with you guys already. So
1: I think you're going to be successful on that basis. But I think the biggest thing is listening is a skill in its own right, uh, communication and accessibility. So as I say, the, the more of a presence you have, and obviously the more people get to see what you're about, and obviously you've got a huge presence and profile already, is that, those will only develop. And then you, you, you look to build your relationship with the club and those things kind of work together. I know there's a lot of people you're dealing with at the club already who, are, who I rate incredibly highly. I include Mo in that, Mo Maghazi, and that, they're, they're aware of it. Richie Kenyon is hugely impressive. Mm-hmm. So you have that access and obviously people are listening to you. So the more you do and the more credibility you build, and, and you, you'll do that anyway because of how you Operate and with a degree of professionalism within what you're doing, I think it will be hugely successful, and I think it's it, it's a it's a positive relationship for everybody. The fans forum are listened to, which is what fundamentally what people want, but then also with the club as well, it's a positive thing because there's a degree of trust there around your relationships.
0: Very good. Well, yeah, we're we'll, uh, we're going to be talking to a few blues later on. We have actually just launched a survey of our international fan base to do exactly what you just described and listen to what matters to them. And we'll be talking about that in a little bit more detail uh, with uh, with some of the Blues that we're speaking to from um, from from Denmark and the US later on. But Gareth, listen, thanks very much for, for giving no, us thanks your time for today. It's been a really interesting discussion.
1: Um, yeah, no worries. Take care.
0: And, uh, we, we look forward to Look after yourself. No worries. So big thanks to Gareth Farrelly there for giving us his time and also for sharing his experience as a Blue That grew up abroad uh, and also some of his observations about how the game has changed and evolved since he was a player, and particularly, you know, how the global nature of football uh, has really taken taken a hold of the game and the impact that that's had. And that that leads us to the second part of this episode uh, about sort of the whole global theme and what that actually means and global reach means for, for Everton and Everton as a club. We've now got over 50 supporters clubs right across the globe. So for the next sort of 30, 40 minutes, we're going to be hearing from three blues uh, who follow our great club um, from abroad and from different countries and different cities about what their Everton story is, but also what it's like to, to follow Everton from afar. So I'm absolutely delighted to introduce Michael Setterberg, uh, Michael, who is chair of the New York Evertonians um, supporters club. Michael, welcome.
3: Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the discussion.
0: Yeah, us too. And also um, George Hakopian, who is from a little bit warmer climate uh, and from the Hollywood Hills, who is chair of the Southern California <laughs> Supporters Group. So, George, another very warm welcome to you too. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. And we'll we we'll ask we'll ask we'll ask the guys in a minute, um, sort of what their Everton story and how they became the blue. But I'm, we're going to start with our with our another one of our guests um, who's got an absolutely fascinating mix. Um, Uh, It's um, it's Franco Benelli. So Franco, uh, as you will learn in a moment, is uh, an Irishman of Italian descent uh, who now currently lives in Denmark and runs the Danish Toffees. Have I have I got all that right, Franco? Uh,
4: Yeah, more or less. Um, Yeah,
0: quite a mix, I guess you can say. (laughs) Um, Very good, very good. Well, it's a great mix. So Franco, tell us, you know, how, how did you how did you become a blue?
4: Um, well, I think like a lot of people, I guess it's, uh, it's my dad. And I think that's where the, the real story comes from, because obviously with the name is, uh, he's Italian. Um, he moved to Ireland in the mid seventies, um, back when there was a big immigration out from Italy. Um, and of course, obviously that's not really so typical that an Italian comes over and follows an English team. But when he came to, uh, to Tipperary where I'm from, uh, Clonmel. um, Basically, he just wanted to be different. When he got there, everybody supported Liverpool. So he just said, ah, I'm going to follow the other team. So uh, that's kind of how I uh, got into it. Um, I believe the first time I had a real connection with Everton was in early 1985, I think it was. He was after coming come back from uh, Wembley in '84 uh, in, um, in the cup final uh, against Watford. And he brought out some of his uh, flags and scarves that he had um, he collected from when he was over. Um, and I think it was just from that moment, I was just about, uh, yeah, four, four and a half years old. And I think that was pretty much it from that day. I just uh, fell in love with the club and, yeah, the Blues, it's been, been there ever since. Fantastic, fantastic. And how did you end up in Denmark? Um, Aeroplane. <laughs> <No, no, laughs> uh, that's, that's an even longer story. Um, my son lives here, so uh, I just had an opportunity to come over and, and work um, and obviously be closer to him. Um and that that was it really, yeah. Um and I obviously, yeah.
5: Yeah,
0: the rest is history has yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I know you're right. I think uh I think many of us have, have got our, our dads to thank for this. So yeah, you've uh he definitely made the, the right choice when he came over. And Michael, what about you? How did um how did Everton come into your life?
3: Yeah, so I uh, grew up as the youngest child in a family. So I had an older brother who was big into the sport, played it uh, throughout his life, and I was kind of riding his coattails, learning more about it, kind of getting into it myself. And then, uh, you know, several years ago, maybe early two thousands, it would be, you know, just just doing some more research, getting into the the league, and uh, you know, I I started to really come towards uh, Everton and the city of Liverpool. And it was really calling to me. I felt a connection there in terms of what I felt were, you know, some values that aligned with the, the same way that I was uh, brought up. And I just, I just liked the community. I liked the history of the club, the original team in the city, and uh, really, you know, just kind of called me in. I didn't, I didn't feel like I did a lot of research for every club because I, I felt like I already had my answer. So, um, you know, I just kind of, I just kind of jumped into it and. You know, fortunately, Everton was a few years later doing some training matches in the U.S. And I was able to go up to Colorado and go to my first match, you know, in I think it was in August or July, something like that, and see them live. And then, you know, just just took off from there. And a year later, I was able to get to Goodison for the first time and been back several times since. And, yeah, just just really fell in love with it.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Who was um, who was for the Colorado trip? Who was the who was in charge of the squad
3: then? Um, that was Moyes. It was 2000, 2008.
0: Okay, very good, very good. Yeah, one of the one of the things we hear often actually is uh, certainly from some of the US fans is is you know when when's the club going to get back there? So it's a, it's an oft asked question. Uh, George, what about you? Um, tell us tell us tell us how you became an Evertonian.
5: Yeah, I mean, I uh, for me becoming an Evertonian kind of had a few steps. But uh, initially, um, my admission is that I uh, I never really had a, a European football club that I supported or followed. Most of my time watching football was MLS, believe it or not. And then um, I was a big U.S. national team supporter and fan. And when Tim Howard went over to Manchester United, I kind of followed him there. and Just kind of watched him there, and kind of supported him out there but I never really became a United fan or anything but then when he ended up in Everton and kind of the way they treated him at United I felt kind of I felt like he was a uh, they they didn't treat him uh, very well in in that one season so when he went to Everton I started supporting him over there kind of followed him along it was tough to follow Everton and follow the games because at that time it was very difficult to even find matches that that had Everton involved Mm -hmm. in it you know over here was always the top the top four or five teams they would always show and um, and so if, if one of them happened to be playing Everton, you know, you'd be able to watch something. And then, uh, and then a couple, about a year or so after that, uh, a, a person that I actually knew from, from the church that I attended at, at the time, um, he ended up getting hired by Everton to become their sports scientist. His name was Steve Tashjian. And so right. I kind of, I started following him and, uh, supporting him from there. And then I had a bunch of friends of mine and that they all went over there and he was able to send me a a signed shirt, and then Landon Donovan went over there. And at that point, before Landon Donovan even got there and while Steve was there, I mean, I just fell in love with the club. I fell in love with everything about the club, like uh, just like was said earlier, the values, the history. It was just infectious. uh, And I mean, I became sort of obsessed with the the whole thing. So I never really went out looking for a club. I never really did anything. It just kind of, I really believe like everything kind of just fell in my lap and that's who I was going to support. And there was no... Uh, question about it at that point and so since then I've just been you know all Everton all the time much to my wife's uh, dismay
2: <laughs> So, <laughs> but. I, I just find it fascinating listen to these stories I, I, like like uh, George said Everton found him he didn't find Everton I I, mean, I just love that the notion that someone without a club or a guidance if you want it can be found by a club like Everton it's just it's just amazing to hear stories like this so just going back on to you Franco what would make Everton so special for you um well I think it's like following off from what you just said
4: there Joe, Joe that like you know this club just kind of finds people um like it, it's it's very easy just to sit down and watch from yeah, we, if we go back like the last fifteen, twenty years or whatever. You know, United, Arsenal, uh, City. Now it's going on to like the likes of Liverpool. It's very easy to sit down and watch these teams and they play like amazing football and they're always winning. And just oh, we support them. But with Everton, there's just always that little bit extra special that you know you don't just follow Everton because it's amazing because they, they play amazing football and 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 they're winning all the time. It's it's something more deeper than that, I think. Um, And I think that's what makes it special for me is that it does, like you just said, it just finds people because you can't just turn on TV all the time and just see Everton, Everton, Everton. it's not like that with us. So if you follow Everton, it's because they want you to follow them. That's it's just an extra special, um, like you say, I think.
2: Yeah, it's like again, Michael, someone in the US, like we we found it hard here in, in Ireland to get even Everton on the radio back in the seventies, eighties, but it must've been equally as hard to get Everton just on TV as well in America. So what, what makes them so special for yourself?
3: Yeah, no, it, it it was, um, some days of paying, you know, a pay-per-view per match to get them on. And, uh, and then eventually, you know, it got to the point where it was tape delay. We'd be able to see them later in the afternoon, five hours after the result. So yeah, it was very difficult, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's special to me. Once once I got stuck in with supporters, um, you know, who who shared the love of Everton with me, um, I really, you know, that 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 feeling of family really started to take root. And I've met so many people, just wonderful people, that have become friends that are outside of Everton as well. Meaning, like, you know, we'll do stuff that's not related uh, to that at all. Um, stay in contact, especially. You know, in New York, we get a lot of visitors that come over, season ticket holders, and I've just been blown away at the generosity and the hospitality that they show us when they come over because, you know, I've got a list of places that I can stay every time I go back to Goodison, people that stay in contact. I was, you know, even extended invitation to someone's wedding, which, you know, is just amazing. So um, it's really great. I mean, just you just feel like you've got so many people around you um, that uh, you're in the same boat, you know, the... The highs are great, you know. When there's when there's success, when we make a deep cup run, or there's something going on, you know, it's it's a a great feeling to share that with folks. And then, you know, when when it's not so good, you got people to commiserate with, and you get through it. So uh, it's 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 pretty special. I think it hit the
2: nail on the head there with the word family, because it really is. And like you said, I've been to like, Christians' communes, weddings. 30s, 40s, 50s, forever, but all through the connection with Everton, which is it's just, it's just like Franco touched on, it's so much more than a football club. So many more things that encapsulate Everton. So for you, George, would you feel the same, like a family connection with different yeah. people?
5: You know what's you know what's interesting is uh, um, oftentimes people ask me who's your favorite player at Everton or what's the what's the player that 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 you know you really like to support and enjoy who would you put at the back of your shirt and all that and honestly I, I think I'm more in love with Everton as a club than I am with any of the players or anything it was just like the family aspect of it is is something I can't I really cannot explain and and like Michael said when you start meeting people out here meeting people from all over the world it's uh, you know, you see somebody with an Everton. I remember one time I saw a person at Disneyland wearing an Everton shirt and we were waiting in line. And I literally ran back against the line for the ride just to just to speak with this person and, 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 and tell them that I'm an Everton fan. And we spoke for about 20 minutes in that line. Um, so it's uh, it's just it again, like I said, it's infectious. The, the family uh, atmosphere, the family kind of the, the, the treatment of one another. Um, where, you know, you can come from all walks of life, all different kinds of places, thoughts. But when you come in and, and you support Everton, you just become one. And it's just, uh, um, it's something that I pass down to my children. And, you know, my son is obsessed with Everton as well. And, and, uh, and part of that, I think, is the welcome that he gets from the, the supporters and, and the, entire, the entire thing about being, being a part of something. You know, it's a, it's, it's a unique kind of family. It's not just a football family. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more than that. Um, And like Michael said, we do, we hang out outside, we're texting each other. We go out to, we go out to pubs, have beers and whatever, but, and that's just outside of just watching the the game.
0: Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I I think what you said there as well about being part of something was something that, um, you know, I moved out here with my family last January out to Chicago um, from the UK and you know, the first you know, no word of a lie. The first sort of objective for us, certainly for me and my two boys who are mad blues as well, was, you know, how are we going to get our everything fixed? Where are we going to watch the match? Uh, you know, and, and what's going to be our routine and um, to sort to sort of do that. So, you know, I've sort of got quite involved in the sort of Chicago Toffees now and sort of, you know, we, there's a crew of us that meet regularly to sort of to, to sort of watch the game. I was just how how you know what what's the makeup of the groups that you that you all work with um, and 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 that meet up in the pubs and what's 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 the the regular routine you have to to watch the games, maybe start with you, Michael.
3: Yeah, so um, you know, fortunately in New York City, we've got a pretty good cross section and a, and a big population to pull from. Um, so I, I'd say we've got a, a pretty wide ranging group in terms of you know a lot of folks that are uh, expats that have come over, um, either from the UK or Ireland. Um, and many, you know, who've been here for, for many years who integral in starting our group. So, uh, that's really kind of the core at, at how we got going, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And then, you know, as things picked up and we started to move from, you know, tape delay matches to, to live matches and people could come in and join us, you know, groups started to go from three people to six people to 12 and so on. And so, you know, you do get a lot of folks that are, you know, similar to me in the sense that um, kind of found Everton on their own or Everton found, found us and um, you know, are not from the UK or, um, you know, don't have someone in the family who passed it down to us. So people who kind of like, you know, first generation, so to speak. And, um, you know, then we also have uh, on, a, on, a, on a regular day, match day, we have a pretty good sampling of visitors as well I kind of alluded to that earlier and so you know there's so many folks that come over to New York on holiday and seek us out and make sure that they pack their Everton shirts you know for a week while they're in New York and um, you know really put on the calendar well in advance you know sometimes we get notices from people that say you know hey I'm coming over in January and it's like eight months away and and they've got it circled on the calendar to come join us so the atmosphere that we have on on match days is is really fun because we're able to kind of you know, bounce around from our regular friends that we see week in and week out, and then also meet new folks that maybe are there for the only time, you know, they may come back five years later if they're back on holiday, but um, the only time we'll see them again is is online and and keeping in touch and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, for for a match day kind of ritual, I (laughs) admittedly am usually always scrambling to get on the train and get to the pub. So I'm always trying to, as the doors open at each stop, try to update my feed and see what the what the lineup looks like and, and figure out what the team changes are. And then, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll get in a, a few minutes before kickoff and, uh, you know, try to <clears throat> try to keep quiet um, and, and not bother everyone as, as we're watching intently and then catch up at halftime and then, of course, after the match as well. So uh, it's, it always turns into a fun day for us.
0: That's great. And, of course, you had DCL and uh, Tom Davis visit you not, not so long ago as well.
3: Yeah, we uh, tried to hunt them down on the streets. They were busy with Fashion Week, and one of our members, uh, he works in uh, that industry. He, he helps set up the audio for a lot of the shows, and uh, he caught them outside of a, I think it was a Michael Kors show, and uh, got, got a nice photo with the two of them and caught up with them a little bit. And, uh, yeah, it looked like they had a, a great time visiting the city. I'm sure they'd, they'd uh, come back any chance they get.
0: Yeah, they looked like they had a good time. And is it true that they take their fashion tips from you? <laughs> ah, yeah,
3: yeah. I, w- I wish I could say that.
0: <laughs> and what about what about um, what about in Denmark, Franco? What's um, um? Are you in are you in Copenhagen? No, no. I'm actually
4: quite the opposite end of Denmark. I'm about twenty oh, kilometers okay. from the German border. Um, so the complete geographical other end of Denmark. Um, but when when uh, the credit must go for the club to to Johnny Sørensen in uh, in Copenhagen, actually. Um, I tried a number of years in vain to start this off, um, but actually it was, I think it was about two years ago he he contacted me. We'd been over to a game together and he actually contacted me suddenly and said he'd actually uh, got a reply from everything about starting the fan club. Um, so if I was interested in coming in with him and helping. Um, and that was, yeah, two years ago um, and we've, it's kind of, um, yeah, we're getting there. It's, it, it, we're already the second year now we've been established, but there's, there's quite a number of blues. Actually, I was quite surprised um obviously there's a big red presence being being Denmark um but the place I've been in Denmark you do you do see you know the occasional uh, blue shirt going around um and we we try and get up and meet up for games if we can in in um how would you say uh somewhere in the mid midpoint um at Denmark but it's not so all so easy um right. when you live in very different ends of the country um so I think that the focus we've we've talked about next year is kind of getting more together with uh, the different um, local groups and, and meeting up. Um because generally speaking on match days we'll be maybe f- on a, on, a, on a good derby day will be maybe yeah f- yeah, ten, fifteen people in, okay. in a pub, uh full of reds, but then we'll always have our little uh, always have our little corner. Um but when I came first um ten years ago, yeah, it's almost ten years ago now, actually. <sighs> I got working in an Irish pub, obviously. Um and uh some some Danish guy had heard that I was that there was a new Irish guy in town and he supported Everton. Um and there was this guy crazy to meet me. Um and Joe knows him actually, Wuna. Um and it turned oh, okay. out he was a blue. Um and he just had to come and see uh, the Irish guy working in the pub who supported Everton because he had never <laughs> met he'd never met an Everton supporter before from uh, outside Denmark. Um so it's 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 kinda yeah, it's 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 not so easy when you're one of the, the, the smaller clubs, if you say, in rabbit ears. Um, but we, we have our fun on the days. You know, we go to the pub and we watch the games. And whether it's Copenhagen or down here where I am or for just sitting at home, we, we keep in contact with each other, you know, and uh, we always have the banter. So,
0: yeah, well, As you say, it's great that everyone still comes together. And, you know, certainly what, um, you know, I don't think that... Any blue abroad or anywhere actually can be can be can be accused of being a glory hunter. Uh, given given some of the leanings we've had, so <laughs> yeah. the fact that, the fact that we're all still rallying around, I think speaks uh, speaks volumes. And what about um, George? I was actually lucky enough to to visit um, some of the crew when I was out in in LA not so long ago. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. we, we, you and I missed each other, but um, so I've actually been in the pub where you know you you go and watch the game. But what, what about tell us a bit about the makeup of the South Southern California Blues and your routine.
5: Yeah, I mean, Southern California is a bit of a challenge. It was a big challenge when I first became kind of interested in meeting up with people because they would kind of meet in a bunch of different places. And the the guy that was in charge really at the time uh, would always post a bunch of different pubs that you might be able to meet at. Or he would just say, "Okay, guys, where is everybody going to meet? And uh, the nearest one to me ended up being in Santa Monica. And that's quite a bit away from where I'm at. And so I, re- I, I would refuse to drive all the way out there because I would just come back always upset and had to have this long drive home uh, mm. after, after a poor match. You know? And so for a while, my routine was just waking up with my kid and we would just watch the games. And that's kind of how he grew up in, in supporting everything we just kind of watched together. Now, um, what, what we've kind of been able to do is we've kind of been able to hone down on a couple main pubs so that when people do come, when they do visit from other places, we're able to say that this is our main pub. So our main pub right now in L.A. is in, in Studio City. And so our match day for us is I wake up early in the morning. I wake my son up if he's not up already. We get dressed and then um, try not to wake up the rest of the house and we head out to the pub. There's a bunch of us usually, um, especially if we're doing well, people show up a lot easier. Um, but uh, we get there. We got our, we got to have our full English. And then... Um, maybe have a Guinness or something uh, before leaving out again. But, um, you know, we have a pretty good time together. Uh, A lot of people that are, you know, they come from all walks of life. And, you know, the thing about LA is people don't realize a lot of people are driving uh, quite a long ways to come to these pubs. So we've got people that uh, are driving from, you know, they're about minimum 25, even 30 minutes to get to this pub to watch Everton. So if the match is at seven in the morning, they're leaving their homes, you know, minimum earliest or latest, I'm sorry, 630 in the morning. So um, so there's a lot of um, commitment to, to watching Everton here in L.A., especially uh, on the West Coast anyway. And, um, you know, so we've had to kind of open up some we've got some people that now do it in Orange County because Southern California is so large. So we have an Orange County group. We haven't we have groups of people that are meeting in the Inland Empire. Uh, and then we have our L.A. Uh, meetup, which is uh, now in Studio City, which is Nice because it's closer to Hollywood, where visitors usually end up staying around. So we've had a few, we've had a few of the players uh, visit us as well. We had Victor and Ichibi visit us a couple seasons ago um, to to watch a match with us. Unfortunately, we got destroyed by Arsenal that
0: match, but um,
5: but it was nice. It was nice (laughs) for us to be together.
0: Uh, Is there a story about? Sorry, sorry, Joe. Uh,
5: Go ahead, Tony. Go ahead.
0: I was just going to. Isn't there a story about you putting an Everton player's hair? Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. That was a, that was a funny one. Um, uh, we, that was a, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That was, that was an interesting one because um, normally whenever uh, we find out that a player is out here visiting, uh, we usually just as a joke, hound them down on Instagram and just kind of tell them like, Hey, if you want to hang out with us. And I ended up posting something to Michael Keene saying, Hey, you know, if you ever want to hang out with a bunch of, L.A. Evertonians hit us up, you know, and sure enough, he messaged me right away and said, hey, I have nothing to do in the next couple hours after the gym. Do you want to meet up? And it was kind of weird because I'm like, hey, you know, you can't get anybody to be there in in an hour in L.A. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, So he, he, he was actually really nice. He was able to accommodate us. And then so a few hours after I got a few of us to meet up at a at a restaurant down in Hollywood. And then he just kind of asked me what I do. And I told him I'm a barber. And again, as a joke, I told him, if you ever need a haircut with you and your friends before you guys head out, let me know. And again, sure enough, he messaged me and said, hey, bring your son over to the house that we're staying at and bring your barber stuff or bring your tools. If you don't mind giving us a haircut. Um, sure. And so it was just like that. And so he ended up playing. He literally played with my son for about an hour and a half, just him and my son, <laughs> just playing football together. And we're just kind of like hanging out. And uh, he was definitely a... Uh, uh, a very very down earth down earth guy and uh, really embodied what it is to be an Evertonian. I I, I think
2: that's cla- I I I just love listening to stories like that, like incidental stories. You know, but it just it just makes so much more special. And and listening to the stories, you know how how far people will go, like be it getting up early in the morning or staying up late to watch Everton. It's 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 just that it's just fascinating. it really really is. But uh, just just leading on. Uh, as you know, we're doing an international fans survey and getting views of views from right across the, across the globe and what they want uh, for themselves and their club from Everton and the fans for them as well. So, just going back to you, Michael, what would be important for you, uh, like needs wise, as an overseas Evertonian?
3: Yeah, you know, I think that um, there's there's a lot of things that are, are done done well and help us stay connected. And so, you know, the, the list of things that, you know, we're looking at, I wouldn't say are, are too long. I think just maybe enhancements off of some of the things that we're already doing. I know one in particular um, that's near and dear to a lot of uh, supporters clubs, um, you know, New York being no exception, is a lot of the things that we want to do to help with, um, you know, charitable functions and helping out EITC and things like that. So I know uh, a lot of the chapters we do things on our own and sometimes, you know, we help back in the uh, the community back in Merseyside and then also do things to help our own communities. So just thinking that, you know, as we, we develop that more, maybe a, a closer partnership with EITC and doing coordinations where maybe we're doing things together um, across some of the chapters and, um, you know, even maybe throwing in some friendly competition to help um, you know, raise funds and, and do whatever we need to together as a group. And maybe we'd be able to leverage some things in terms of materials that, you know, if there's flyers that we can send around to our group uh, electronically or even print them up and bring them to the pub to give them uh, details about, you know, what, what the campaign is all about, things like that, where, uh, you know, maybe if we just kind of leverage one another and do things uh, consistently, we'd be able to be a little bit more efficient Uh, And and just kind of do things like that. So that's one that's come to mind. Um, I know, you know, we've we've talked about um, you you talked about the surveys and things like that, which I think are really great because that's a way that our folks can feel involved and provide value back to what you what you're all doing uh, with the club. So just the outreach like that, I think, is very appreciative or appreciated. So whenever we're able to just share our voice and, and share thoughts and feel that we're, we're part of that discussion, I think that's also very important.
2: Yeah, I, I think one of the main remiss myself and Tony have is getting more and more internationally involved in the process, especially with the fans forum. So, Franco, would you have any ideas or queries that you'd like to put across, not just to us, but to, to the club itself? Um, yeah, I
4: guess I think it's. Um, we we'll all go from different dynamics because we're all obviously living in different parts of the world, etc. Um, but I think for for us, speaking from uh, I guess a selfish point of view, coming from Denmark, it's it's um, it would be nice if there was more um, interactivity among the clubs. Can we say um, maybe something? I discussed this with you and Mick before about something like maybe. Uh, yeah, I know they have the end of season tournament. But maybe more uh, more events during the season involving different fan fan tournaments uh, or fan groups, like they have, you know, the the um, the tickets for the supporters clubs um, where they get the reduced price for some games. Maybe on those weekends we could maybe um, do some more activities involving more fan clubs, because um, I know speaking for some of the Danish guys, they would love to get involved with some more of this kind of um, international things. Can we say on the weekends if we were over in Liverpool? Um, So that might be something going forward, maybe uh, even if we were just to organise it ourselves. Um, Because it's always nice just to meet in the zone and have a pint and all that before the game. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to um, just kind of break out and do something other than just the match on match day. Um, If that makes sense.
2: Again, it goes back to to, to the earlier, like meeting different people from all walks of life and... Different countries, different genres, everything. So yourself, George. What What was you really look like to see from Everton themselves, the club, to have, uh, to have the I, club?
5: Yeah, I think. Um, I think as a, I think the club in the recent years, maybe in the last year or so, has really done a lot better. Um, in reaching out to the to the clubs, to the supporters groups around the world, um, especially in the United States, as I guess, and you know they are trying. It seems to kind of connect. Some of the American players that were uh, that have played and kind of connect and remind the, the the supporters and the fan base of why you know they they kind of fell in love with everything and all that. Um, I do think that it would be nice um, again to to have those kinds of outreach kind of things again, uh, which they've done okay in the in the last year or so. Like I said, um, I think that in terms of uh, the supporters groups, I think maybe more things to maybe help the supporters groups um, reach out to one another or um, perhaps connect them on a global level to kind of, you know, again, showcase supporters groups, showcase things that the supporters groups are doing. Uh, just like Michael said, we've done a lot, a lot of the chapters here do a lot to kind of help out and give back to uh, EITC and things like that. So I think that would help or maybe send out more things that we can give away or raffle out uh, just to help out with kind of connecting us um, on a global level. Uh, and then just f- for the United States, especially, I think, In terms of branding, I think Everton is where, I think that's where the work needs to be at this point, is to kind of get the brand of Everton into the United States a little bit better. Uh, I think I have a lot of ideas or opinions on that, but um, that's a different situation than just reaching out to the supporters groups.
0: Yeah, some some really common themes there, and actually... We're we're not quite finished with the survey yet. That uh, that Joe referred to it, it runs until the twentieth of May, so there's there's still a few days left for people to respond to that. But you know, some of the things that you you've all raised there, uh, we've certainly seen um, in some of the interim results in the survey. So, you know, look, I think you know Joe and I are going to take it upon ourselves now to to make sure that we give that 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 feedback back to um, you know, back to the club. um just again, just maybe just one quick question to to all of you. You know what you know. You sort of Joe and I have made a big play around sort of having international representation on the fans forum. So what what, what do you want from us?
4: I can take I can start a few Yeah, um, well, I think for all of us, I think it's we it, We like to say thank you for a start because it's a really good uh, that we're, we're finally feeling that we have a voice. Um, because I think one thing is that you're down on paper as a as a fan club, but I guess with with um, events like this, you're feeling really, really a part of um, actually the club. Um, so I think it's just basically a voice is what we would look for. And I think going back to what George just said, he hit the nail on the head with the word branding. I think that's that's a big thing because we would all like to see the Everton brand grow um, wherever we are, um, because we're all in competition with, uh, you know, other teams and, and, and we all love Everton. Um, but we would like to see it obviously more um, and just for you guys to be there to give us a voice um, Of course, you can't do everything you can't do everything everybody says um, but if you could just just be able to listen to us the fans and and um, Maybe yeah, take that to the higher powers to be I think that's that's good. It's a good
3: start Michael Yeah, no, I think uh, I think Franco made a really great point there. I think it's it's really about um, just you know, hearing from the clubs here and, and helping us get that message back to the club. I know that, you know, sometimes the different supporters clubs around, around the world have different and unique uh, challenges that, that they come up against. And so we can't solve, you know, every one-off problem, but, you know, certainly there's things that, um, you know, we probably all share in, in terms of, you know, hearing from our, our members that, you know, would, would enhance their experience. So, you know, I, I know uh, ticketing can be difficult. Um, so, you know, we can't just uh, snap our fingers and get tickets for everyone. Um, but there are folks that certainly, you know, want to want to come over and, and make somewhat of a once-in-a-lifetime trip over. And uh, we, you know, always want to be able to accommodate them. And I think the club's been doing, doing good with that. Sometimes, you know, it gets a little tricky depending on the match and especially if it's an away match, things like that. Um, but, you know, whenever we put the word out in terms of, uh, you know, just – uh, letting the club know that we've got someone coming over. um, uh, they really make that that trip uh, memorable for them in some way. Um so that's so that's really good. And then I think George was alluding to this as well. Um, you know if if you can kind of help us uh, as different campaigns come through the club and there's an opportunity to highlight members from you know the respective supporters clubs around the world in terms of things that they're doing that really should deserve some recognition, uh, whether it's helping with the fundraising or doing stuff that is really putting the, the brand of Everton out there further. They're really working hard to either, you know, create, uh, you know, unique scarves or things that uh, represent their community and their supporters clubs or, you know, building a forum that allows us to kind of connect with one another and chat during the matches and, you know, whatever the, the thing may be that, that they do that just kind of helps push Everton forward and to spotlight that I think would be really great. Yeah, well I'm a bit I'm a bit scared to ask George now because the list
0: of things that you want me and Joe to do is getting longer and longer. So um, maybe we should stop there. But George, anything to add to what Michael and Franco said? No, I'm not gonna do that to you. <laughs> that's that's good, man. I'll I'll leave it at that. that they, they, everything they said
5: I agree with. Exactly.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, listen, thanks for thanks for being so open um, with us. We you know we really appreciate it. And look, it's been dead evident, hasn't it, through this conversation, sort of, you know. The strength and depth of feeling that you know you've all got for Everton—it's no different to to any other Evertonian—and you know I'm I'm glad that, um, you know I'm glad that you know we've been able to connect today and sort of learn a little bit more about what it's like to to be a blue abroad and, you know, there's clearly a common love of, of our club although, you know, as as you said Michael at the end there, I think you know there are differences and um, so I think it's important that a that they're recognised and then b, you know, that we can we can try and sort of take some of those issues that you've raised and look, you know, Joe and I'll do. What we can to, to do that so uh, you know you've got you've got our commitment on that as well so thanks to um thanks to all of you for for, for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure uh, i'm looking forward to, to staying in touch with you in the future so before before we do sign off and close the podcast for those of you that listen to the others you'll know that we're doing uh, the sign off of each podcast with a with it with a song from uh, one of our supporters clubs so in keeping with the foreign the foreign theme um i'm now going to leave you with a little ditty from Ed Livingston from the Emerald Isle Everton Club who's going to leave us with a little song about one of our most treasured foreign imports.
4: Well, he comes from Killybegs. He's got one of the
1: best right legs. What's his name? 60 grand, 60 grand. Shame is Seamus <laughs> Coleman. Sixty grand, sixty grand, shame is over. Sixty grand, sixty grand, I say. Sixty grand, sixty grand, shame is
4: over. Playing football, he ever said away. Sixty grand, sixty
1: grand.